Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, private credit. You know we love this topic. Uh, it's a big, growing market. What, what, what's one your and a half, around one and a half trillion. Oh, my goodness. And, nice. you know, it's just been growing. I've been calling out that having seen a bunch of credit blobs back in my day, there's going to be something. There's no regulation of this market. Something's going to go wrong. And I keep saying it, but it keeps growing. And I'll tell you what, pretty much everything we know about the credit, private credit business, we learned from uh, Randy Schwimmer. Yes. He's a co-head of senior lending and Churchill Asset Management here in New York. Randy? You said 90%. Yep. I, I have work to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm just, I don't want to put all the blame on you, but um, talk to us about how, the growth of this business. This private credit business has been such a, a big growth story on Wall Street, really since the end of the great financial crisis. How concerned are you about the development of this market? Should investors and should regulators be concerned? Well, and Jess is now part of the private credit posse. Right? Yes, she yes, is. I am. <laughs> well, the timing of this is great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, because what's happening is that and I talked to uh, someone on a podcast that, that we're doing recently, it's coming out I think this week, about what the, that exact question, why are people so concerned and why is this viewed as a bubble as opposed to natural growth of moving loans from the public banking sector into the non-regulated, which is what the regulators wanted. And he said, because it's new, it feels new, mm -hmm. it's not public, these loans are not traded, these are middle market companies. Um, and part of that is just getting educated in the asset class. You guys have been doing a great job in doing that and helping me get the word out. I think Mark Rowan pointed at Apollo pointed out the fact that it's really investor education and the more mm -hmm. education there is, the better that we look. Um, but the fact of the matter is that this is actually a natural evolution away from traded assets where the banks were considered to be not healthy holders of these loans. And so the private credit market has responded to the immense amount of appetite because of so much of market volatility, these loans are untraded and illiquid loans as opposed to being a negative are viewed as being positive to a lot of investors, institutional investors who are looking to allocate to uh, non-traded, non-volatile, less correlated assets. So the reason that the asset class has grown so much is because the investors are looking for alternatives to the 60-40 correlation, yep. you know, the allocation model that we talked about. Um, and, and at the end of the day, these are middle market loans. These are uh, low risk, relatively low levered, fully secured with financial covenants, 
Um, and so think of private credit as middle market lending for grown-ups. Okay, yep. it's very stable lending that is being now packaged in multiple funds, very diverse uh, investor base uh, across many, many now thousands of investors who are investing in this asset class, who have experience in other complicated asset classes such as real estate and private credit and. Uh, public equities and fixed income. And so it's actually meeting a demand and the demand is growing as more investors realize what an opportunity and benefit it is. What is your investment approach for private credit, specifically for your clients? What do you advise them to do and how to have that exposure? Yeah. So uh, we're also very fortunate to be owned by a very large uh, entity called TIAA, which is oh, their holding right. company right. for Nuveen, which is a trillion dollar asset manager. Um, and they have uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in fixed income and public equities and real estate and municipal bonds. And what their investors are looking at, the same thing as our investors at Churchill are looking for, is the stability of returns. And so in a normal environment, a senior credit, um, we've talked about this, will, will get you kind of a 7% unlevered yield. In the current environment, which is why it's very attractive right now because rates are up, they're earning a 12% unlevered yield. And so when they look at the returns of 12% versus what they're getting in other markets, um, we're representing a lower risk profile. And so that's adding to the appetite that these investors are looking for. Now, in our case, we can offer them senior debt uh, opportunities. We can offer them junior capital. We can offer them private equity. So we have a number of asset classes that we're also offering our private equity sponsors in terms of their financing options. So we're taking the same uh, financing um, choices that we're giving our clients on the uh, financing side to the investors on the investing side. And that's, that's what makes the sort of nice balance, which I think as investors and frankly the uh, media and regulators get to understand the asset class, you know, this is, this, this is not fast money. This is money that investors are focusing long-term uh, assets with us, long-term liabilities, because these loans don't disappear tomorrow. They're not traded. Um, and that kind of stability is, is really at a premium right now. Who is a typical investor in one of your funds? So, yeah, we don't really have typical investors. We have them from a broad array of types of investors. So we have uh, pension uh, plans, mm -hmm. we have wealth, wealth uh, funds, we have sovereign wealth funds, we have insurance companies. Um, and, and essentially, as more and more investors, particularly sophisticated investors, are looking at their options in this higher for longer world, they're thinking, you know, I, I need a premium yield because I can get 5% on treasuries right now, um, but I also want stability. And those are the things that are attracting now, um, even further down the, the food chain in terms of family offices and retail. And I think as the asset class grows, and we're calling it kind of the new paradigm, as, the, as investors look at the benefits that private credit is offering, and they're seeing some very sophisticated players in this market, um, they're, they're saying, how can we participate in, in, the, in this asset class? Do you see any red flags that are bubbling up in private credit? Any corners? Yeah, that? well, the thing that is most, I think, concerning to anybody who has experience in the asset class is high interest rates. Because the, the thing that, uh, when you look at your portfolio with rates now at 5.5% from a benchmark perspective versus zero a yep. uh, year and a half ago, the interest coverage is shrinking across portfolios. And so um, 
everyone looks at that as a risk and it's a real risk. And so you have to build a portfolio that is ready to accept those higher rates. And the way we do it is we look at very defensive sectors that have high free cash flows um, that uh, are owned by private equity firms who can grow these businesses to keep pace not only with where GDP is, but also uh, where some of the higher growth sectors in areas like healthcare and business services are, are going. So to give an example, the average growth in both revenues and EBITDA in our portfolio right now is about 12.5%. So when you look at the GDP, which is bouncing around 2 3 4%, something like that, you're looking at businesses that we think will go grow through whatever cycle is coming. It looks like probably a soft or no landing is going to be expected. Uh, but our businesses are really faster growing than that. But they also tend to be businesses that are market leaders, uh, that will be able to sustain any kind of downturn, even if we do have it. What's the deal flow you're seeing from your uh, private equity sponsors? What's it yeah. been like today in this higher interest rate environment? We, we just got the October numbers. We are the most, as of the end of October, the most active direct lender in the market right now in the United States. Hmm. The reason that that's happening is that our private equity sponsors continue to have dry powder that they are raising in their own funds. They wanted to put it to work. They've identified areas of interest as I mentioned, in these defensive sectors that in this current economy are doing well. Um, and they realize that next year is probably going to be a better year than people think, probably not going to have a recession. And so they're trying to vote with their feet. And they're looking for scaled players like, like Churchill that can write large checks where we have relationships. And I think I mentioned this mm-hmm. last time, we're an investor in their funds. And so we were sort of first in line uh, to be asked to join these deals. We still tend to be pretty picky. We end we probably do about 5% of the deals that come in the door. So we're looking for only the best of the best, knowing that we don't know what's coming next year. I mean, think about where we were two or three years ago with COVID and interest rates. Um, and the good thing, and this goes back to this issue of a bubble, these, these middle market companies have been tested. They've been tested through low rates. They've been tested through high rates. They've been tested through low inflation. They've been tested through high inflation. And so I think the, the, the benefit that needs to be explained more, and this is part of this education, is why these companies actually do well, um, in some cases even better than some of the larger companies, because they tend to be in structures that are more conservative, and also with lending partners such as ourselves that are basically built for the long run. We're going to work through whatever problem these companies have to get to a, a final resolution that's a positive one. Since your clients have money to use that's sitting on the sidelines, what do you think this tells us about the direction of the economy, if they're willing to take more risk? Yeah, well, I think that uh, amazingly it looks like the Fed has engineered um, some kind of soft landing. We'll see what happens. It feels like their language continues to be hawkish. They want to keep people on their toes. Um, But if that's the case, and I do believe that it is, that next year will be a solid, solid year, Um, That could be a good thing. Now, in general, I do believe that inflation will be higher um, and rates will still be higher. But this is kind of the the normal that we forgot about um, that hasn't been with us for Mm -hmm. 15 years, right? You've had zero interest rates for a large part of that time. This zero gravity environment we got used to, all of a sudden, you know, we're like the Apollo astronauts that they get, you know, back or anybody from... uh, um, and these long space missions, and they, they, they can't walk because they're not used to the weight of gravity. That's kind of how we're feeling right now. I think the world is not used to having a 5% Fed funds rate, but in fact, that's the average over that's the last average. 60 years. So I think we're returning to that, which is good, because uh, when you have zero interest rates, it, 
it sort of inspires some um, problematic behavior. But I think this new normal is actually very positive for private credit and for investors in general. Randy, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming in the studio. Again, Randy Schwimmer, he's co-head of Senior Lending and is Senior Managing Director at Churchill uh, Asset Management, uh, one of the leading private credit providers uh, in the marketplace. And again, that's a it's a business. I'm just looking at some Bloomberg reporting here. Private credit market has roughly tripled in size since 2015. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 2023 was not a great year, kids, for the IPO market. It was just kind of muted at best here. I guess a little bit more hope for 2024. We had some news today. Shine, the China-founded online fashion company that won over hundreds of millions of shoppers around the world, has confidentially, well, how confidentially can it be if it's filed to go public right. in the U.S. <laughs> and what could be one of the biggest IPOs in years? Brianne Lynch joins us. She's head of market insight at Equity Zen. So, Brianne, just give us a little summation. How was 2023 in terms of IPO activity? Thanks for having me. 2023 was certainly an extremely quiet year for IPOs. So far, we've seen about 23 billion in IPO proceeds, higher than last year, but drastically lower than the 300 billion we had seen up to this point in 2021. So it's been a quiet year and the fall cohort of IPOs that we did see, so Clavio, Instacart, Arm, Birkenstock, really did not paved the way for others to follow. Uh, it looks like Birkenstock as of today is the only one trading above their open price. So it's been a tough year for IPOs, uh, yet there is a lot of demand for IPOs and there are thousands of unicorn companies sitting on the sidelines, you know, figuring out their next move. What does this mean for 2024 then? Yeah, I do think we'll see the market pick up in 2024, um, you know, both from a macro perspective as you know, you talked about a bit earlier, we're seeing better macro indicators. We have job growth, we have strong 
GDP, inflation is cooling, uh, you know, there's an end in sight when it comes to rate hikes or, you know, even rate cuts. So that puts us in a better position. Um, and ultimately, a lot of these companies are feeling a lot of pressure from both early investors and shareholders to achieve liquidity. Um, you know, look at Reddit, a company that was rumored today to be considering an IPO in 2024. This is a company that was founded in 2005. So they've been private for 18 years. There's a lot of pent up demand for liquidity and mm. while platforms like EquityZen can enable some of that liquidity while they're private, it really takes a public market exit for vast number of investors to have access and uh, you know that wide scale liquidity for early shareholders. Is Kim Kardashian going to save the IPO market? I hear she's got a company called Skims, which I'm sure John Tucker is aware of. But oh, he knows. Uh, That's yeah. where I got this scarf. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, talk to us about like I don't know. What do you know about Skims? Sure. So Skims kind of um, bucks the trend of some of these other companies. Uh, they were just founded in 2019. So a relatively young company, uh, valued at a four billion dollar valuation over the summer, um, but they're rapidly growing. They obviously have a strong brand name. Um, you know, the connection with Kim Kardashian certainly helps. And, um, you know, from what I've heard, they have a strong product as well. So if they did IPO next year, they would certainly be different than a lot of these 10, 15, almost 20 year old companies that we expect to hit the markets. What industry groups are doing better at going public at this point versus others that are struggling? Is it more company specific or is it more industry specific? I think it is company specific to some extent. Uh, you know, there are certain things that any company is going to need to exhibit to have a successful IPO. They need to be showing profitability, they need to be showing growth, and they need to have a strong brand that investors know and recognize. That being said, a lot of these companies this fall uh, showed some of those elements and still weren't successful. Uh, the industries that we're seeing the most investor interest in in the private markets are AI and machine learning, so not surprising, uh, information technology, so pure tech companies, and fintech. So those are the areas we're seeing interest in the private markets. When you look at AI and machine learning, a lot of these companies are younger companies who are less likely to be close to an IPO. Um, so I think some of these pure tech companies that have really attractive multiples could be the ones uh, you know, that have a more successful debut. You know, uh, Brianna, I wonder what the what are the bankers saying as to why they didn't get more done in 2023? Like back in my day, as long as this market wasn't crashing, I could push out a lot of stuff out the door, particularly if companies that are really looking for some liquidity. What are they saying here? What kind of market do they need? I mean, the S&P is up 16, 17, 18%, even equal weighted, it's up four or 5%. So it's not like the market's down. I think you're you're right. The macro indicators show that we are in a you know pretty good place for companies to exit. I think that there's just a lot of trepidation in the market, given that we haven't seen a blockbuster IPO be successful, you know, this year um, or last year, really. So it's I think it's more of a investors are nervous. They're looking for someone to lead the pack and kind of tell everyone, okay, this is going to work <laughs> out fine. And we have yet to really see that. Um, I do think once we see one or two really successful IPOs, the doors will open more because, you know, 
the macro factors are there and uh, it should be a decent market to exit. That being said, I think another factor that impacts a lot of these companies is that if they raise capital in 2021, it's very unlikely that that valuation is still uh, where the market is mm-mm. unless they've grown into it. So they're just going to have to accept that the IPO um, at a lower valuation, you know, if they're trying to exit. Well, Shine could be maybe one of these companies because it's, I think, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal reporting, Shine which is, it's a Chinese company, so that could be an issue for some people, but it's now based in Singapore, was valued at around $66 billion in a fundraising round in May, and is likely to aim for an even higher valuation in an initial public offering. So I guess, and it's got Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley. So, I mean, it seems like all the elements are there for Shine. Do we have any sense of timing, Shine? Would it be early 24, later 24? Uh, indications look like this would be an early 2024 IPO, but this is also a company that has had its valuation decrease. They raised capital in 2022 at a $100 billion valuation. Earlier this year, raised again at a $66 billion valuation. And as you said, looking at an 80 or $90 billion valuation. So they haven't bucked that trend of companies that have had to, you know, accept that their 2021-2022 valuation may not be where the market is anymore. Um, But to your point, it's a company that has achieved $23 billion in revenue, had its most profitable half in the first half of this year. Um, You know, it was growing rapidly with new distribution centers in the U.S., Canada, and uh, Europe. They're opening new manufacturing centers in Brazil and India. So a lot of growth going on there, Um, but also some concerns about their relationship with China, um, you know, IP infringement, labor practices, and some other things. So certainly not a straightforward story on this one. We only have about a minute left, but what other companies should we keep on our radar that could potentially go public next year? Yeah, Reddit's one that we mentioned. Um, they are in conversations to potentially file next year. Uh, they private for a very long time and um, really have solidified themselves as one of the leading social media platforms in the U.S. Um, they made, um, you know, a lot of splashy news in the era of the meme stocks. Their subreddits, Wall Street Bets, um, was really, uh, you know, the catalyst for a lot of the retail momentum in the stock market. Um, so I think they are an important one to watch. Um, and SeatGeek is another one that has oh, yeah. confidentially, not sorry, not confidentially, had filed to go public hasn't yet, um, but has grown significantly. And we know they're considering an IPO. So we have eyes on that one as well. All right. Well, hopefully 24 will be a better IPO market. Then we have more opportunities to talk to Brianne. Brianne Lynch is head of market insight uh, at Equity Zen. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Just met Paul Sweeney live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker. This is a treat, folks. Neil Hennessy joins us, chief market strategist, the Hennessy Advisors. He started this back in 19. 19- 89. I'm not going to call him old. I'm going to say he's a seasoned investor. Seasoned. But we share something. <laughs> we share something. We both started our careers at Payne Weber, which is a great Ooh. brokerage firm, investment bank, great retail presence. Um, back in the day, it was acquired by, I don't know where it is now, but now it's basically the guts of UBS here uh, in the U.S., but uh, the house of pain. Neil, thanks so much for joining us here. You see a market like this, SPX up 17, 18%. 
but it's you take out the Magnificent Seven, and what do we got here? So uh, how do you look at markets like this? It doesn't feel like a healthy market. Well, the market really hasn't gone anyplace. I mean, as of yesterday, you look at the NASDAQ was up 37%, but you take out the always eight stocks. Yep. We'll get to the Magnificent Seven <laughs> here in a second. But essentially, you take those out, the market's up 7%. So it's really gone no place. The Dow's up 25 or 3%. So those eight companies have controlled the market. But interesting enough, then you get to three weeks ago, I guess we came up with the new slogan, Magnificent Seven, Net mm -hmm. Netflix went out. But that made me think to go back to 1960 oh boy. when the movie was made, The Magnificent yeah, Seven. Sure. So I'll give you something to think about here is uh, in that movie, the ending, they hired seven gunslingers mm -hmm. to help protect the Your town, partner. and there are only three left. <laughs> so you tell me which three of the seven yep. are going to be left. So what do you do with a market that has that lack of breath? I know you guys at Hennessy are value investors. So how do you approach this market? How has it changed maybe over the last several years? As a, you, know? you know, value is, is a, a place that you want to be if you want to play again. Okay. So look at the uh, S&P 500. You're talking about Apple is seven over 7% 7 of that. 13% mm -hmm. of the NASDAQ. And if you think logically, would you put 13% of your money in one stock? Probably not. Right. Okay. So, but that's what people have been doing. At some point in time, just like the late 90s when all the value managers were getting fired because if you weren't <laughs> 23 years old and you didn't have a dot com, com on your forehead, you were fired. Yep. But essentially, you know, I love the mid-cap arena, okay. like the Hennessy mid-cap 30. And the reason I like that is mid-cap stocks have really outperformed everything over time. And they're large enough to withstand an economic tsunami. They're big enough to make an acquisition that would be accretive to them but from a smaller company. But they're also big enough to be acquired by a larger company and be accreted there. And so you see a lot of value in, in that mid-cap arena right now. What stocks or industries in mid-caps do you like? Well, you know, you know, energy's, energy's there. But I mean, if you look at names that people don't uh, associate too much when you get the radio, TV, or something like that is uh, Comfort Systems, big deal but most likely they did part of this building because they're industrial and, 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 and building and putting in the ventilation, heating, air, things of that sort. You know, they earn $8 a share and pay a dollar dividend. So yep. logic would tell you there's plenty of room to raise the dividend. Um, stock's can, up 70% year to date. So yeah. good call for a $7 billion market cap company. FIX is a ticker. Yeah, and then you can look at Sprouts Farmer's Market. Wait, wait. This is a public okay. company? Hold on. Huh? I'm going to just, just go ahead. I'm just going Sprouts, to uh, hopping up on the terminal. Okay. You know, it's Farmer's Market. And, and truly, when you walk into the store, you feel like you're in a farmer's market. There's produce all over. And, and then if you think about inflation, food prices yep. that have gone up, and, and you go, well, geez, do I really want to get into a specialty market like that or Whole Foods? Well, there's a big difference between Sprouts and, say, Whole Foods. or And, and that's simple that... You know, you look at the produce and you look at the vegetables and stuff and you just add a little bit of pasta and you can make a very cheap meal for yep. a family. 
and that's that's their their niche they have about 300 stores mainly on the west coast but you know here's this company that makes three dollars a share and doesn't pay a dividend mm-hmm. so you know there's so much value out there you just keep yeah keep looking for it and then buy and hold it sfm is the ticker there yes. up, uh, it's got about a yeah 4.3 billion market cap up 30 percent year to date how do you guys at hennessy define Value. I mean, is there a PE threshold? How do you screen no. to find Sprouts Farmers Markets? I know an analyst didn't come to you and say, "Hey, I just went into this great farmers market. I think we should buy it." So I'm guessing <laughs> yeah. you guys screen here. Well, to yeah, get, you're, to get to you're right. Everybody has to a certain. Every money manager has a formula. Yep. Okay, and we have a formula, and what we do is once a year we rework the formula. So essentially, it's uh, looking for companies between one and ten billion dollars in market cap. We're looking for uh, increase in earnings. The main point being a price to sales ratio of 1.5 or less. So we're not gonna pay more than $1.50 for a dollar in sales. And that's where the value is. Because earnings, just like anybody, you can manipulate earnings by taking a write-off or adding this or taking a gain. And earnings don't pay your bills. Cash flow pays yep. your bills. And so when you start to look at a truer number, unless you're going to do an Enron, it's <laughs> sales, right? And so we won't, like I say, pay it more than $1.50 for a dollar in sales. Now you take those uh, magnif- magnificent, se- easy for me to yep. say, <laughs> uh, the seven or eight stocks, and you're looking at a price of sales of four, you know, somewhere in the nine, yep. the 10. So, you know, we're they're buying... You know, they're eight times what our threshold is, at least. What are you selling? Well, we're not selling anything because when we do this formula, at the end of the formula, we buy the 30 companies, okay, that hit the list and essentially buy them in equal dollar amounts, hold them for one year, and then readjust the portfolio to then the 30 stocks that hit our list and buy them in equal dollar amounts. But the last stage of that is we're looking for companies that have, uh, or stocks that have price appreciation over a three to six month period. And then we buy the top 30 that have the best price appreciation after one year. And you sort of ask, why would you do price appreciation? Aren't you just chasing the market? The reality is really smart managers, more than me, They've been buying these companies for a while. They've just been holding their hand little by little by little by little. So over a three, six, 12-month period, it goes up. So we're not catching it in the first inning. Right. We're catching the stocks in the third inning, fourth inning, which is where you want to be. Okay. Sounds reasonable to me. It's a plan. You've been doing it a long time. It must be working. <laughs> Neil Hennessy, Chief Market Strategist, Hennessy Advisors, based out there. Um, what's the name of that town again? Novato, Marin County. Novato, Marin County which is really a beautiful place uh, to be. And I don't know why, you know, everybody doesn't set up shop in Marin County. (laughs) Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's get to Washington, D.C., because there's a lot going on in Washington, D.C. that will impact markets, impact individual companies. So we like to get a sense of kind of what are the investors, the professional investors, how are they kind of discounting what's happening in Washington, D.C. and some of the policy and regulatory risks? So we always appreciate checking in with Jen Flitton. She is head of U.S. government affairs at Invesco, a huge money management firm. Jen, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of issues that you guys are following down there in D.C. I'd like to start with my government. Is it going to shut down anytime soon? Do I need to be worried about that? Well, not until January, uh, at least for certain appropriations bills. So uh, a couple weeks ago, they were able to pass a continuing resolution. That's that stopgap funding for the government into January. So we're not going to have a holiday shutdown threat. Uh, We'll have uh, two basic um, tiers. It'll be January 19th, which you'll have uh, the agriculture bill, the energy bill, the MilCon and VA bill, those will be dealt with by January 19th, theoretically. <laughs> and then you'll have a February 2nd where you get the really hard appropriations bills done, right? So that's defense, labor, HHS, homeland, think immigration, interior, think environment. And so they'll have to come together um, over the holidays and then going into next year on these bills, the House and Senate. So how likely are we going to see another 11th hour type of situation leading up to these deadlines? It's pretty likely, I'm afraid. I mean, look, you have the Senate that is marking to FY23 numbers and you have the House that's marking to FY22 numbers. That's a big difference in money, right? So they're going to have to find some Why are they doing it differently? Yeah, so the agreement on the debt ceiling negotiations uh, over June was to mark to FY23, which is what the Senate's doing. But conservatives in the House were very unhappy with that Uh. budget ceiling negotiation. So they got appropriations to agree to mark to FY22. Interesting. All right, so they can't even agree on that. Um, All right, so a lot is going to fall to this new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana. Um, Is there any reason to believe that he's going to be more successful integrating his far right part of his party so they can actually get something done in the House? That's an excellent question. And we're going to know a little bit about that over the next 36, 
48 hours as he meets with the conference and tries to, to get an agreement um, to move the NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, which must be done by the end of the year. Uh, they never let that lapse. It's been like 60 years since that's lapsed. So that has to get done before they break for the holidays. And then there's got to be some agreement around the supplemental bill, the $106 billion supplemental bill for Ukraine and Israel, Indo-Pacific, uh, the border. And he is sort of juxtaposing the negotiations in the Senate and has to figure out what his own conference can swallow. And those meetings are happening this week. So what's the, I mean, do we ha, are we if I'm an investor and I'm thinking about Washington, D.C. and think about policy, am I beholden to literally a handful of representatives for just movement of my government? Well, quite frankly, uh, it, it is a very tight margin, not just in the House. You have about a four vote margin and in the Senate, one vote margin. So, yes, there has to be compromise. There has to be negotiated agreement. And that means making a lot of people unhappy in order to move these bills, these must pass bills. And that, quite frankly, is the same situation that McCarthy was in that now Speaker Johnson is in. But the same is true um, for Majority Leader Schumer, uh, the Democrat and McConnell, who are trying to walk this tight line on NDAA and on the supplemental funding and on appropriations. So they're all still in the same seats. It's just, you know, one different player here. So as far as looking at how some of these deadlines kind of overlap with the next Federal Reserve, well, not the next Federal Reserve meeting, that decision's on December 13th, but the meeting, the first meeting at the beginning of next year, it's actually January 30th and 31st. So you have some of these shutdown deadlines coming up close to that. Uh, how do you think this could potentially impact anything coming up when it comes to some of that uh, policy decision when you have issues going on the other side with the government? Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, Congress doesn't look much to the monetary policy issues of the Fed. And it's questionable, I think, how much the Fed considers the, you know, annual budget appropriation process, uh, the fiscal issues um, as it makes its monetary decisions. And so while it is a congruence of issues that are all going to arise at the same time, and I expect that will make the markets a a little, you know, uh, you know, volatile around around these important deadlines. Um, I, I do think that as we enter into 2024 with this election year, you're going to see after these appropriations bills are settled, the shift is going to be a hard shift into election year politics. And that really is going to be the driver going into 2024. So is that kind of the message? Like if I'm a you know, Invesco portfolio manager, equity portfolio manager, or fixed income, and I call you up and I say, hey, what's the biggest, I don't know, risk for me and my portfolio coming out of Washington, D.C.? What do you, is it, do you say it's just, I guess, the upcoming election? What, what are some of the big, what's the big issue for you? Yeah, so the next, what, six, eight, nine weeks are really going to be the vast majority of legislation that's going to get done. That's going to be as I said, the NDAA, the approves, but also some tax extenders, which are possible by the end of the year. And then it's going to be a lot of messaging bills. You're going to see in the House, they're going to try to do a lot of messaging. If they can't get something done on immigration within the context of this supplemental bill, they're going to push, they're going to continue to push on that border issue. It's going to be a major message um, for, for House Republicans. 
And then you're going to see a lot of executive action. You're going to see the agencies taking it upon themselves within their own discretion or discretion as they define it uh, to move the agenda of the administration. Uh, things that they weren't able to get done over the next last three years or that they've been working to resolve and finalize over the past three years. And so that's really what I'm telling folks to look at right now is watch those executive actions. So what are the most immediate things that you're watching in the next few weeks as far as what people need to be focused on in Washington? Well, first, we've we've got to watch these negotiations on appropriations, and we will be behind the scenes watching that very closely. Um, but over the next 36, 48 hours, it'll be really interesting to see how these members sort of resolve on the NDAA, that Defense Authorization Act, which is very important. Conference technically meets on Thursday, but they could have a decision by Friday because they've been negotiating this behind the scenes. And there's some... In- some amendments that could be added to that 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 we'll be looking for um some related to ai some related to crypto money laundering issues um some relate relating to outbound investment in china um so we're looking for uh whether those will be included in the final ndaa but then it will be a race to the appropriations deadlines and making sure that they fund the government um, that is important to the rating right, yep. of the U.S., um, but also sort of the, the faith in, in this Congress's ability to get things done. Well, a lot of work to do. Um, we'll certainly follow up with you, Jen, on that. Jen Flitton, uh, she's the head of U.S. Government Affairs for Invesco, trying to keep track of all the legislation, uh, all the policy work that's being done uh, in Washington, D.C., and how it impacts uh, Invesco portfolio managers uh, and their investment holdings. Uh, you know, the analogous person for Bloomberg Intelligence that does that work is Nathan Dean for Bloomberg Intelligence. It's so important uh, for investors to have a good feel for what's going on down in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.